Hi everyone, this is Yin and welcome to Growth From Failure. I wanted to create this show to highlight extraordinary people that inspire and motivate me to level up, but with a slight twist. I'll have conversations with people from a variety of professions, from investors to entrepreneurs to educators to athletes, because I enjoy hearing a really good success story from any discipline. But I wanted to view their story more through a lens of struggle or hardship and even failure. Because for me, the biggest lessons learned and opportunities to grow aren't from the wins or triumphs, but from the setbacks and defeat. So instead of reviewing their highlight reel with all the success and accomplishments, we'll talk about some of the bloopers that includes the mistakes and the rocky roads, which can be glossed over, but oftentimes more impactful to their mindset and success. I hope hearing their journey inspires you to not fear failing, but motivates you to reflect, to keep learning, and ultimately to keep growing. This is the story of Michelle Miao, host of the eponymous radio and TV show, and also a leading voice for the LGBTQ community. In this episode, Michelle and I talk about her rise in broadcasting and her own show, The Incredible Michelle Miao Show. And we discuss how a $250 check about 20 years ago from a progressive bail bondsman (laughs) changed the course of her professional career. We talk about everything from the mistakes that she made in her 20s and 30s trying to seek others' approval to love and how she receives love, gives love, reflects on love. I find Michelle to be such a beautiful soul who is both sympathetic and empathetic. We have a mutual friend, Rocky Corona, who said it best that Michelle has an undying commitment to create space for everyone at the table, especially those that have never been invited. And she does this on camera, but more importantly, she does this when the cameras are off. Just incredible. This interview really reminds me of why I wanted to start this show in the first place. It's real and it's honest and it's painful at times to hear parts of her journey. And there is so much growth. Michelle inspires me to think about others and their identities, be it ethnic identity, sexual orientation identity, gender or class. I really hope you love this interview as much as I did with the spectacular Michelle Miao. Enjoy. Hello, Michelle. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for joining. Big, big thank you to Rocky Corona for introducing us. And Rocky and I go way back to eighth grade. It's actually when I moved to a small town called Newman. He was one of my first friends. And then when I moved from New York back to California, we had caught up and and Rocky had mentioned his love and respect for you. And so I had just had to connect and I'm very grateful for the intro. So thank you to Rocky. Now you are the host of the very popular Michelle Miao radio and TV show and a prominent voice in the LGBT community. I definitely want to talk about your history and your message of inclusion. But if you don't mind, I start the show rewinding people's highlight reels all the way back. And so I'd want to bring it back to where you grew up. I grew up in Stockton, California, so not far from Newman. Every time I bring up Stockton, everybody has an opinion about Stockton, especially nowadays, if you're following the news and because of Mayor Tubbs, former mayor of Stockton being one the youngest, one of the youngest, and I think one of the first African-American mayor for Stockton and his plan for universal basic income for the residents of Stockton. So it put on the map for people like what Stockton might be like, but if anybody had any experiences or had visited Stockton or from Stockton, you get a lot of people who are like, oh my gosh, 
so violent. It's so the word ghetto, which I hate using that word nowadays. But my upbringing, we lived in poverty. My dad died when I was very young. My dad and my mom migrated from Laos in the late 70s, and he died shortly after. So my youngest sister was only two months old, and my eldest brother was like 10, and there was five of us. And so my mom raised five young kids on her own. Wow. So I remember my childhood being traumatic and painful because... We were hungry. We had to shield ourselves from the violence that existed outside. We were very sheltered because my mom had to go out and work and was too scared to let us go out and socialize. So we didn't really have access to resources that one would think creates a healthy, happy childhood. And then coupled with my mom's own trauma and pain from losing my father and just never really dealing with it emotionally. So that's one. But at the same time, though, you know, we grew up in the the hood. And so the young boys in the hood took care of us in a lot of ways, you know, whatever they were doing, and they bring back food or snacks, uh, whatnot. And they kind of served as protectors for us girls or young kids in, in the streets. So I wouldn't necessarily say it was all sad. I do have appreciation for growing up poor. One guest I had on the show is also from Stockton, Grace Reyes. And because of her family structure, she grew up filled with love that she didn't fully appreciate the surroundings yet until she got older because she said the family made it so wonderful. And so it's nice to hear that it's similar where both your neighborhood but also your immediate family provided that for you guys. Yeah, yeah. If I could, I thought about this actually recently. I would love to write a love letter back to the young men who had to choose a different path than I did. So a life of crime or a life of struggle or gang activity to provide for their families. And I wish that there was a lot of things that I could say about, if I was smart enough to say it, I would have told you the system is designed for you to fail. Don't fall into the trap. We can get out of this together. But anyway, that's for another show, I'm sure. (laughs) Right. Well, I'm also, a few of my fans know that I'm a big fan of The Defining Decade, and it was a book by Meg Jay that prompted this, but the idea that in your 20s, that is such an impactful decade for you in setting up both your professional network and also personal network. And I start really with college, and so I'd love to hear where you went to college, why, and what you decided to study. I believe it was journalism, but would love to hear that path. I went to San Francisco State, and I went for their broadcast program. I think they're one of the few colleges that specifically had a broadcast program. And I wanted to do commercials or something behind the scenes at the time. And also, gosh, uh, San Francisco seemed pretty cool. And when I came out to college, I mean, I felt right at home, because it also was when I came out. So it was more importantly, a period of exploring and coming of age for myself. When you came out, what was that like for you? It was pretty fast. I mean, I had a boyfriend at the time, but when I kissed a girl for the first time, she pulled me in the the bushes. And I think for her, it was more of an experiment, a drunken situation or something like that. But when she kissed me, the fireworks went off and something that I always felt not quite right seemed very right. And I fell in love with her immediately. And that was just kind of like, oh, so, you know, this is what this is. 
And you know, I went on to declare it pretty early on, telling my boyfriend, "I'm so sorry, but I'm gay." He didn't believe me. He was like, "You're being influenced <laughs> by these weird people in San Francisco." My parents or my mom didn't necessarily believe me. It was really traumatic for her, for for me to come out as a queer woman. I think for me, it was like right away, instantly, like I knew something that had been missing my entire life at the time finally was right. Once you came out openly, were you proud of it? Were you nervous? Was there a period of transition where you weren't sure because there's so much around you that says, no, no, we don't believe you or you don't know? There were parts of me that knew very quickly on that I had to create different identities for different people. So there were some people that I felt absolutely not, I can't tell this news to. And then there were people who I felt super happy to tell. And I also had somebody else in my life who'd kind of given me the past to feel comfortable to come out, which is my older brother. So he took me around San Francisco. He was, he's, is my father figure. He's my older brother. So he did the college tour before I decided to go to San Francisco State. And he sat me down at King of Thai Noodles in San Francisco, <laughs> told me himself, you know, he's a gay man. And you're going to hear a lot of horrible things that people are going to say about gay people. and They're not true. And if you want to live in San Francisco, you've got to be really open-minded. So there is a little bit of that. And then, of course, exploring my own sexuality with potential partners of the same sex in, at San Francisco State was, I think, some of the best years. <laughs> if, I, if I could go back, I would. Amazing. God, I love those older brothers. My, my experience with mine was very similar. He took me around all the UCs and, and helped me understand which college is best for me, but ultimately helped me just understand myself a little bit more. And so going to college and going back to what you described as a period of exploration and education in other ways, not academic, what was that like and how did you settle on journalism? I kind of always knew that I wanted to be in broadcast, but behind the scenes, right? So since high school, I think my senior project was a commercial I had written a commercial from beginning to end, filmed it, produced it. It was a Sprite commercial. <laughs> <laughs> so I thought that that's what I would do is, is something along those lines. And very quickly, I got a, an internship. And it's funny how I got the internship at Clear Channel. I was working at Sephora at the time. So yeah, putting... <laughs> putting makeup on people that I should not have been doing their makeup. <laughs> but there was a gentleman there who was, as he was uh, doing stocks, who was the stock guy and he is a gay guy. And he said that his partner worked in, in radio. And if he knew that that was my major, so he said, you should go and do something with it. And so he introduced me to his partner who they were trying to start a gay radio show. So they were like, we need someone to just research for us. So, if you want to come and volunteer and do that, then you should. And I thought that that was like the chance of a lifetime, that that was really my calling. So that was a really long way of saying, I think I've always known that this is what I want to do or that I would be here doing this. And so was that, was that your first job after you graduated? Technically, no, because right, like my, I was working at Sephora and I was just doing the sales stuff. I was the nose, you know, because I could smell different notes in a perfume. And then also when you put a lab coat on me and stick me in the skincare department, like people really believe that I was some kind of dermatologist. <laughs> <laughs> and when they realized that I, I was graduating, they were going to offer me 
a full-time position, uh, possibly leading into the, their corporate division. But I took the internship. And then shortly after the internship, the company was like, if you really want to work here, the only position we have available is a sales position in AM radio. So if you come sell advertising, you'll get a key card to come inside the studio to tape a show if you want to. So I did that, which was not necessarily a salary, but they were paying me a draw. (laughs) And so what was that role like? Well, it basically, they throw the phone book at you and they say (laughs) cold call and sell some advertisements, sell some airtime. But I had a very specific goal and that was to grow this LGBTQ talk show that I was working on. At the time, there wasn't really an LGBTQ talk program. And we were late night, Sunday night at 9 a.m. to midnight. And so my boss was like, if you want to keep working on this show, you've got to get it funded. You got to get, you got to sell radio ads. So I wrote a thousand letters to all these businesses that I thought were LGBTQ friendly and told them, this is what I want to do. An LGBTQ talk radio program for queer people to be on the radio waves. Will you support me? And so out of the thousand, a hundred responded. I got 10 meetings and then one person said yes. And it was bearish bail bonds. They're not there anymore, but they marketed themselves as the progressive bail bondsmen because they used to help all the protesters like throughout the 60s and the 70s, the progressive protesters. They used to bail them out. So she cut a check for $250. I still have that contract framed, (laughs) right? But, But it was the first check that the company said, hmm, somebody's actually writing a check for you for this program. I think we might be onto something. That's the beginning of the story. Amazing. Then you get funded with a $250 check. What goes on after that? And then it became... I kind of just stuck to the same strategy because I actually did hate cold calling because they stick you in a cubicle and everybody can hear you. It's like, what are you supposed to say? So I kept doing it. And then the second person to say yes actually was a big mortgage lender. And this was during the time where all those commercials, Ditech.com or you know, all these jumbo loan mortgage providers were doing their big buys. So the guy ended up spending... It was an insane amount of money. I think it was like $6,000 a month on just the tiny little nine to midnight LGBTQ talk program that nobody has ever heard of. <laughs> so that was a big deal for my boss. And that was when it was, it, it just kind of rolled into me sticking with it and saying, I'm going to go somewhere with this, I hope one day. And just to set the stage, what was the LGBT community like 20 plus years ago? Because Certainly now it's different, but then you were in San Francisco. So just to set that for our listeners. It absolutely was not, you know, what you see now as far as like the Pride Parade and 250 contingents and tech companies who celebrate Pride Month. But it also wasn't 1969 where we're fighting against police brutality. And this is definitely before marriage equality. So queer people knew that we did not have the same rights. We were not represented in the same way. It was still incredibly dangerous for us. And we're fighting right-wing ideologies that fought against LGBTQ existence. 
And then with San Francisco, of course, there were spaces and enclaves and neighborhoods like the Castro that provided safe space. So I think that all leads to the reason why queer people compartmentalize our identities at times, because it's for safety. So in my opinion, was very bold, because Clear Channel, that's who they were at the time. Now they're iHeartRadio. They were headquartered in San Antonio, Texas, owned by conservatives. It was very bold and courageous to even say, I'm going to do this. And within a company that is as conservative. Incredible. You get this mortgage lending check in size that continues the funding for the popular radio show or emerging radio show, the 9 p.m. to 12 a.m. slot. What next? Then comes 2008. And this is when California is considering, you know, marriage equality here in the state. And so there was a bill called Prop 8. And here I am thinking, you know, we're doing this show and it's all about LGBTQ people. And we talk about issues, policies, life stuff that affects LGBTQ people. I'm doing the right thing by telling everybody to vote for marriage equality for queer people. But then because it's a radio station and there's more conservative money pumping into radio, as far as ad buys, we'd go on the air and there would be an ad for to vote against marriage equality. Basically, it kind of hit me where I was like, okay, what are you doing all of this for? You're doing it for the cause. You're doing it for a paycheck. What does this all mean? And so that's when I decided, I think it's too hard to not have full backing and investment from the company you work for, uh, the people around you. So Maybe you should just do this on your own. Was that when the show was born? Yeah. So in 2008, we went independent. I did, I guess I should say. And the first sponsor to say, yes, you should, was New York Life. Their marketing director for the San Francisco region at the time was a gay man, Tony Condi. And he believed in it. He believed that we should be able to have a voice, have representation, and it not be within the confinement of a corporation. We really needed to lead in this and educate people on LGBTQ rights. So that's the story. (laughs) That's fantastic. How has your show evolved? How has the voice evolved? What is the message and strength of your inclusive efforts and focus on overall diversity? When I first started doing this show, LGBTQ people were not in the media as much as they are today. And it was about, I wanted to normalize LGBTQ voices and people and our lives and to stop talking about LGBTQ people as if we're different or we're not normal, which was the narrative at the time. Throughout the 10 plus years that the show has been going on, LGBTQ rights have obviously evolved. So we've now gained marriage equality and a lot of rights for even our trans brothers and sisters. And yet there's still a whole lot of work to do. And so talking to so many people, I realized that the issues that impact and affect LGBTQ people are, you know, they're intersectional. There are other identities that we have, whether it's our ethnic identity, whether it's our sexual orientation, gender identity, our class background that intersect in our oppression. And so in addition to normalizing our voices, 
we need to be talking about these issues, how they affect us as a whole, if we really seek the change that we want. And so how do you attack such a complex problem? You mentioned many different fields that you can go down, but how did you look at the puzzle and say, okay, here's the framework of how to start solving it? Well, when you start looking at issues like homelessness, and you look at the percentage of folks who are affected by homelessness or who are actually homeless, the figures are double digits for LGBTQ youths as they are double digits for the Black community in certain urban cities. When you talk about homelessness, you can't talk about homelessness without bringing queer people and Black people to the table if we're really looking for a solution. And so with that framework, with that kind of an example, it's just how I started to produce conversations. If I'm talking about women's rights, who do I have at the table to talk about women's rights? Are they only cisgender women? Are they only straight women? Are they only white women or Asian women? So that's where the show is at today. It is an intersectional approach to social justice issues. It's incredible. And when you're thinking about setting up the the content and the programming, do you focus more on the educational aspect of, gosh, this is one of the first platforms to really highlight this. Let's try to educate people. Or is it more aspirational and using an anchor to say, no, here's the force for good and here's what we want to head towards? Or how do you view that? Thank you so much for that question. I think it's like what you're doing. It's asking folks for their lived experiences and listening to their truths. So much is unknown about people's lived experience and their truth. They are not at the table or if they're not actually the ones telling their stories. And that's what I figured out. It was like so many stories are being shared and produced by people who have no idea what it's like to be poor or no idea what it's like to be black or no idea what it's like to have uh, been through the criminal justice system. Is it about educating? Is it about informing? Is it about entertaining? Or is it about inspiring somebody else? I think it is all of it. But most importantly, it is about the individual and their lived experience and sharing their authentic self, their real, true, and raw story without somebody else saying like, no, can you say it differently? Mm -hmm. Oh, I love that so much. There's a maxim that I've come to really appreciate through the pandemic and it's ultimately, it's connection, not perfection. And the idea is, gosh, it is so hard to connect on an authentic and genuine level when there are so many filters and layers of how people act and communicate based on what people want or what you think you should do. And I'm using air quotes with that. And so the idea is to share these stories that for me are just so inspiring because it's really hard to find that voice. And I think that your viewers and your listeners, that seems to be one as I'm reading the feedback and looking at all the articles and press that you had, that seems to be the biggest story around Michelle Miao is how you do that and pull that out and tease it out of people. So that's really wonderful. I noticed that you were elected to president of the SF Pride Board. Please share more about that. Would love to hear more about it. I kind of evolved into the role. I mean, when they asked me to be a part of the board, I had already served, I don't know, six plus years as a volunteer in producing and hosting the San Francisco Pride Parade broadcast. So I was always involved in Pride in some way. Two years into college and going to San Francisco Pride, I was already working Pride, not kind of sitting there as a participant. But it did feel like the weight of the world was on your shoulders at the time that I was leading as board president for San Francisco Pride. It was a very 
tumultuous five years, in my opinion, at least from my experience, a lot had happened throughout that, including the Orlando shooting, which is one of the most individuals in a mass shooting who who died in American history or modern American history. There's so much more that I want to ask you, and I definitely will over drinks when we see each other in person. But I'm going to transition to a few of my favorite questions that I ask everybody, starting with who or what inspires you? Oh, gosh, this is such a tough question, because I will tell you, each and every person who's been on the program is someone who has inspired me, right? Even if we don't stand on the same side of our political views or we don't agree, they inspired me enough to want to have them on the program and share stories. But I go back and reflect on Barbara Smith's work a lot, who is part of the original Combahee River Collective, and she is a feminist and Black rights leader and advocate and also queer. But I go back to her teachings and I go back to her readings all the time when I think about social justice work and her reminding me of what breaks down these movements. So when you're an individual that and you consider yourself a part of this movement, you always have to be mindful of things like racism, sexism, uh, homophobia, transphobia. These are the things that can break a movement. Fantastic. Going back to your interviews, you've done so many over the decades that you've done your shows. What are some of the most impactful for you or the ones that you remember and really resonated with you at that moment in your life? Wow. (laughs) This is also a very tough question because they're all really impactful. I'll start with one of the very first interviews that we did when I started out was Dr. Judith Lively, who at the time was one of the top surgeons for Kaiser Permanente and one of the first to come out as a trans woman and came out to her patients as a trans woman before LGBTQ rights was a thing. And I learned so much from that interview. Her and her wife shared so candidly about their love, about serving as a nurse and serving in the American military and then coming out as trans and explaining their love in a way where it was like, why do we put so much emphasis on our bodies and how that equates to love? Why isn't love looked upon as more internally? So I really love that interview. I remember it till this day. Some modern interviews, or I don't want to say modern, I feel I'm talking about <laughs> myself like I'm like 150 years old. Some contemporaries, <laughs> no, some newer interviews that I've done lately and that have really impacted and hit me. I mean, one interview I did with Christian Picciolini, he is a former white supremacist. And what he, he does is disengage people from white supremacy or white, or I guess you could say extremist groups. And he was just so honest about what is it that attracts people to white supremacy or these extreme framework of mind. And it really gave me, I guess, a much more human approach to understanding the rise of someone like Donald Trump. So I go back to his book a lot, which is called Breaking Hate. And I really appreciate the work that he does in reaching young folks and being honest about the secret operative of white supremacists that live out there. They're in uniforms. They're high up there in the chain of commandments. They're in the highest level of authority in the power structures of our government. 
And I think being honest about it is very, very important. Amazing. Breaking hate. I have to pick that up. I have a huge pile of books on my nightstand based on all the recommendations of my interview guests that I have now wanting to read. And it's getting embarrassingly high, but I'll definitely add that to the queue. And I want to make it my goal to read it this year because it sounds really informative and just very eye-opening. What are you most proud of? It's so hard to answer this question because when you're doing it because you feel like you have to, you don't look back at the work if you're measuring it by success or, or pride. But since you're asking, I think I'm most proud of just telling these stories that you wouldn't have heard of and the impact that people sharing their stories has on the wider community. And some emails that I've gotten from folks from, uh, gosh, I get emotional. <laughs> but folks saying, out of the interview, I got a job. Or out of the interview, uh, you saved my life. Or <laughs> That's a pretty of, big one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I know, I know. I, 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 I can't believe it, right? Like, I don't believe it. Or out of the interview, I gained, you know, friendship and I feel seen. Those are the things that make me proud. Because I think that at the end of the day, like, we're all human beings. And all that stuff that exists such as the hate and the racism and the greed and the inequality and the inequity that stuff is not what we start off as as people i just love that so much i'm i'm getting emotional thinking about and reflecting on all the people i've interviewed and and one of them had this quote that i just love amanda rice who is a three-time cancer survivor and she said you don't have to change the world but you can change a world and it just resonated with me so much. And for you, I mean, you've had a decade plus track record of having these amazing conversations that literally people tell you, you saved their life. Or, and so I, I think that's just so powerful. And the measure of success, I work in finance. And so that measure is completely numeric generally. And I tell you, when you take a step back, no one at the end of the day cares when they're 85 saying, gosh, I wish I would have made more money. They reflect on all the connections that they have and the impact that they did. And and so I think with your impact that you've done, it just, it, it's really incredible. One question I ask all my guests is their perspective of luck and how luck, good luck, bad luck has impacted their life. And in a prior conversation, you had mentioned how you felt luck, good luck had really blanketed you because you shouldn't even be here. And so I would love for you to expand on that and more on your perspective of luck. I really mean it. I don't think that I should be here. I mean, there were so many incidents where I feel like I pushed myself to the brink of death and danger. And a lot of it, growing up in a single parent home, and there's so many of us for my mom to have to raise. There's five of us. So it's not like I had the attention maybe that I thought that I should have as a young kid, but feeling like I had to navigate the world on my own. And so when you're doing that, yeah, I do think that you risk making a ton of mistakes and making bad decisions or putting yourself in really risky situations, right? And I feel like I did that throughout my entire life. And even for this dream of saying, I just want people to take us seriously again, or not again, but I want people to take us seriously, period as queer people, as poor people, or people of color, or immigrants and migrants and asylum seekers, 
I just walked such a long path of failure that I don't understand why I'm still here. Well, I, I feel like all of your fans know why you're still here. And so I will probably read you some of your feedback and letters because it's your sure will and genuine desire to help and highlight it. That's very, very clear. So I, I think your fans would, would tell you why. I have a question on love. Did you ever question the ability to be loved or to feel incorporated? And I think I ask because love is a hard question where people sometimes feel like they don't deserve it and they don't know what it's like. But I just would love your perspective on love generally. I was talking earlier about my own path of failures and and it feel like you know risky and bad decision making and and it comes from a place of not necessarily having all the resources, right? And maybe not having enough mentors or I'm not sure. I don't know. I just know that growing up the way that I grew up and not having what people think is a traditional or healthy system, I think that that probably affects me as an individual and how I navigate the world. I have to take risks in order to get somewhere. I have no choice. You know, basically, there's nobody there to chart my path for me or support me in a way where I think I should be supported either as a kid or as an adolescent or a teenager. And so to answer the question about love, I don't think that I started out in life loving myself. And I think I looked out there into the world seeking love and approval from other people and thinking I'm doing the right thing if somebody does love me or somebody approves of me. And so I spent my 20s and 30s making so many grave mistakes because I wasn't actually prioritizing myself. And I was prioritizing everybody else's opinion and everybody else's reflection of who I should be, which absolutely, I have so many regrets. I myself then, in turn, traumatized from that, hurt people that I loved, that hurt people that wanted to be there for me. I just could not define or answer what love is. I, I think I'm still navigating that, actually, and trying to figure out what love even means with my relationship with my family. I do know what love means now with a life partner. And the funny thing is when I met her, it was very instant. I can't make decisions actually. Personally, I cannot make decisions. (laughs) I've only known two things in my life. One, I want to be in broadcast. I love talking to people, love interviewing them. I love what I do. But two, I knew that she was going to be my wife. It was very instant. We didn't know each other. So <laughs> this is the wrong way, apparently, you know, from a traditional perspective of falling in love, you got to give it time, then you can get married. <laughs> but I did it backwards, just like I do with getting ready for each and every interview. I don't have time to read everything. So I read the, the beginning and the end and then fill in the middle. But at least I know what the story is. And I guess that's the story of my wife and I. 
I love that. Well, everyone has a path and the way that they define it is different. And so someone's forward is someone else's backwards. And so I don't think there's any right or wrong, but it's amazing that you guys have found each other. And of the two things you were certain in life, she was one of them. That's amazing. There was a woman I interviewed, Tibu, who was one of my favorites. And she, as I described her on the show, it's the best Vietnamese engineering rapper. <laughs> it's because her parents were immigrants and said, you want to be a rapper? Well, then you be the best engineering rapper or doctor rapper or lawyer rapper you can be because that's how we were raised. And she said, wouldn't it be amazing if immigrant parents or all parents said, instead of celebrating the success of first time their child goes to college, how about the first time you go to a therapist and talk and focus on mental health, right? And I, I just love that so much because my mom doesn't listen to this show and she really has no interest in supporting it because she thinks talking about feelings and self-reflecting is hogwash. She just thinks it's, oh, that's yin being silly. My ultimately last question, which I ask everybody, and it used to be, you had mentioned a lot of failures along the way, and I used to ask people the most impactful failure that they've had. And ultimately, the stories have morphed into really focusing on their growth. And so I'll ask you, what is your biggest growth moment that you can share? A growth moment for me is very recent, is the end of December, two days before Christmas. And I noticed that my hair started falling out and at rapid speed, like within a week later, 80% of my hair, including body hair, was gone. And I had no idea had no idea what was going on. It was the holidays. It's during a pandemic. The doctors weren't getting back to me. When I finally had an appointment with a dermatologist, I had to fight for a blood panel just because if my hair's falling out, there's got to be something internally that's wrong, right? Well, it turns out that all the stress, and I totally believe the stress of two decades, had finally come to a breaking point with the pandemic as the cherry on top of that breaking point. And my body was telling me something, you've got to love me. You've got to think of me first. You need to sleep. You need to realize that you can't control everything. You can't make everything better. You don't have a solution for everything. And you don't have a solution for them as some of the mistakes that you've made. And you've got to make peace with yourself, live, and then get back on the horse and do it and do it better and do it as great as you can so you can make peace with everything that's on your mind. So I think that that was the biggest growth period for me is having to listen to my body, having to put myself first and coming full circle with what I said to you earlier. I don't think I ever loved myself. And I didn't know what, I didn't even know, you know, what does that mean? What does that look like? What does that feel like? until a part of me was lost. And fortunately, it was just the hair is growing back a little bit now. So that's my story. <laughs> that's incredible. The body has a very fascinating way of reminding you what's ultimately the biggest priority is yourself. That's amazing. So all the tests all came back and it was stress. Yeah, the doctors won't, I don't know why, but they say, you know, all these tests, they can't stated as a fact that stress is linked to it. Although the source of support for me, and I had to seek it out on my own, was other people who had been through alopecia areata or alopecia. And then saying, I had an episode of alopecia when my mom died, or I had an episode of alopecia after a bad, bad accident. And it's like, how 
can you say that trauma doesn't affect your body? It absolutely does. And your mental health, which wasn't a part of the treatment plan. And it's one of the things that I speak very openly about. I think that we definitely need to look at mental health and be open about it and it being part of the treatment plan and not being ashamed of it. I'll be honest with you. It was the first thing that started to go. And I really did feel like it was a breaking point for me if you were going to live or you were going to die. There are certainly many points in my life that I thought about suicide, almost committed suicide, and unsuccessfully. And so here at this state and this age, you're so wrapped up, you're so stressed, you're so down. If suicide is the course for you, now is going to be the time that you would do it successfully. And that's just kind of how my mind started to go. And I had to just snap back in. And it's like, you have a wife, you've got a community, you've got yourself, you've got a family. You can get out of this. So again, that, that yeah, a very recent growth period. Amazing. And so two days before Christmas, now you've had several months to reflect and grow from that. What are some of the steps you took in order to strengthen the that effort of self-care, self-love, focusing on health, physical health, mental health? Believe it or not, it doing the show, I made so many risky decisions, so many harmful decisions. But at the end of it, I always thought like I was doing something. I needed to do it for the cause, for the community. And I didn't realize that throughout it all, like how much was I taking care of myself? But in this situation, it was like the show took care of me. The show snapped me back. I only had a week or so until I had to decide, like, am I going to go on the air and be honest about what happened? Hey, everyone, like, I look different. I have no more hair. I don't know if it's going to grow back. This is what happened to me during the holiday break. Like, I just lost all my hair and I don't know why. So I had to kind of think about it. I wanted to be mindful of the community. I want to be mindful of people who are going through stuff. And then I also realized it's every single person that would ask me about it, they would kind of devalue their own stress level and would say, it could be worse, right? Like, I, I'm, I'm not homeless. I'm working from home. I know I'm super privileged. And it's like, no, it's okay. Share that. We are all being super affected. In whatever way you're being affected, just be honest about it. I think for me, how, how did I get out of it? It was really the show and, of course, my incredible wife and her support. In the end, I mean, she sprayed every single thing that she could think of that might help, even Vicks VapoRub, because <laughs> it can act like a cooling cap when cancer patients are growing back their hair. So that kind of support, too. And then people genuinely responding back to me as I gave myself space on the show to talk about alopecia. Well, thank you for your honesty and just sharing so much. What's next for Michelle Meow? <laughs> oh, gosh. As a queer woman, as a woman of color, as a product of migrant parents or immigrant families, you're always having to reinvent yourself, right? So I would love to be interviewing people until the very last day of my life. I love to hear people's stories. So as long as I can do it, I'm going to do it until they turn the lights off on me. 
I am venturing into producing for other people and creating platforms and spaces for them to do their own programs, their own shows. So we'll expand the work over at the Commonwealth Club of California, where I'm doing public forum programs. And probably my wife is from Thailand. So we're really thinking about an international situation as a lifestyle one day. So we'll see. Well, wherever it is in the world, you will add extra light because that's just how you shine. And I had a blast in this discussion. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. And I love this podcast. This is so great. Thanks for all you do, Yin. Yeah.